if you've been doing much Christmas shopping over the past few weeks, maybe as you've been shopping and looking at, uh, at certain items you've been wanting to, to purchase or things you've been wanting to buy, uh, maybe you've seen some people trying to advertise and, and get your attention or get your business by the use of before and after photos. Um, uh, wh- why would they offer before and after photos? Uh, it's because th- they're wanting to highlight how awful the situation was before, how bad your kitchen looked or how dirty your, uh, your floor looked or how chaotic your life was, and then to show you an after picture of, uh, of how this item or this product or this company or this person can bring order and cleanliness and ease to your life. And in fact, uh, the, the greater the, the, the difference and the distance is between this before photo and the after, the more glory, attention, is given to the product or the person. Uh, the, the increase of, the, of the, the destruction, the rot, the decay, the mess before highlights the goodness and the greatness of this product, this item, this person. We have been together working our way through a portion of Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. Matthew was one of uh, the followers of Jesus. Uh, He was one of his authorized spokespersons who wrote an account of Jesus' life and teachings, and he has given us uh, a genealogy of uh, of Christ. And Matthew's done uh, something interesting. He's broken with normal protocol in the, the, the people that he's included in this genealogy. And we've been trying to draw our attention to uh, four women in the Old Testament uh, that, that, uh, that Matthew mentions. Normally, women would not have been included in genealogies, but for some reason, Matthew is doing this. And he's drawing our attention to these women and what they reflect to us about the goodness and the grace of Christ, his purpose and his work in our world. So first we looked at Tamar, then we looked at Rahab, we looked at Ruth. And this morning, we're looking at a woman named Bathsheba. The interesting thing, though, about Bathsheba, her name isn't listed in this genealogy. Notice what Matthew says. Look with me. Chapter 1 of Matthew. Uh, This is on... If you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, this is on page 807. I'll start at verse 1 just so we're catch up with the context. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Matthew could have hidden that. 
just call her Bathsheba. Maybe people would have forgotten. But by including and describing her as the wife of Uriah, Matthew is highlighting and saying, a sin has occurred. A great sin has occurred. Here we are going to encounter as we go back into 2 Samuel and hear about what happened between David and Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And what we're going to see is that David's sin increases and increases and increases. But what we're also going to find is that where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. So let me pray for us, and we'll dive into David and Bathsheba's account. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us, that you love us enough to reveal yourself and your creation. You love us in a particular and special way that you would reveal yourself to us in your word. We pray this morning that not only would you give us cognitive understanding of what these scriptures are saying, but that you would give us light into our hearts to understand and see Jesus here, that your scripture would be applied to our hearts, and that Christ would be glorified, and that you would continue your work of changing us and drawing us closer and closer to him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you would, let's flip back into the Old Testament, back to the book of 2 Samuel. This is on page 262, if you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats. We're going to work our way through this account of uh, David and Bathsheba's interactions together. And what we're going to see is that sin definitely does increase and increase and increase. Uh, so n normally what I do is I'll read through the whole passage, but what we're going to do this morning is because it's pretty lengthy, we're going to comment as we go along and draw our attention to how the author is pointing and showing us the increase of the sin that is going on in this passage. So let's start there in verse 1 of chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Here, it's the beginning of the sin. The author is highlighting it for us. What is this the time of year for? It's the time of year when kings go out to battle, but what do we find David doing? The one who is to be the representative of his people. The one who is to be the champion for Israel as he looks and hopes in God and leads his people. David is at home. In fact, David here looks less like the king who is after God's own heart that shepherds God's people, and he looks more like Saul, who we'll encounter when we go through 1 Samuel, who preferred to stay back and send other people to jeopardize their lives, to keep himself safe. David here, valuing his own life at the expense of others, his sin begins. But notice... It increases. In verse 2, it happened late one afternoon 
when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof of a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. The first thing that we see is uh, as David is uh, walking around on the roof of his house, he sees Bathsheba bathing on, on, on the roof of her own home. Uh, now, someone bathing on the roof of their home wouldn't have been uh, out of the, the ordinary uh, back then. Uh, what was out of the ordinary here, at least for the people of God, was David's response to seeing her. Upon seeing her uh, in uh, a revealed way, he draws his attention to look on her more. He begins to, uh, to, to look upon and lust after a woman who is not his wife. He didn't need to call and ask somebody who she was because it didn't matter. She's not your wife, David. But he does so anyway. And what does he find out? Not only does he find out that Bathsheba is the wife of someone else, he finds out that she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah. Later listed as one of David's mighty men. He's not just any member of David's army. He's one of his most trusted, one of his most skilled. David would have known who Bathsheba was because Uriah was close to him. And did that stop him? No. He continued on. He invites Bathsheba into his home, sending for her by messengers. Now, some interpret this passage and think that also what is going on here is uh, that uh, it's not just a, a, an issue in the sin of adultery, but that uh, David is uh, sexually assaulting uh, Bathsheba because of the, the, the power differential that's at play here. Um, now, can that happen and does that happen? Yes. And when it does, that is a, a horrific thing. Uh, but that is not what's going on in this passage. And let me give you my reason for why we would understand that. The Bible is not uh, ignorant to sexual assault and sins of that nature. The law uh, and that Moses gives us has the penalties for that. But particularly, we want to know, what about this author? Well, the author of 2 Samuel, in a few chapters, we're going to actually see he's going to give us an account of a sexual assault, of a rape. He has the language and the terminology to describe when that occurs, and he talks about it happening in just a few chapters after this. Um, also, we know that this author, as we will see, is not uh, afraid to show us David's sin and his rebellion against God. He's not trying to paint David in a, a, a good light here. He's revealing his, his sin, and all that he's revealing and showing us here in this encounter with Bathsheba is one of adultery. And in fact, when we read in Matthew, as Matthew reflects back on this passage, Matthew describes it also in the language of adultery, that it was the wife of Uriah. And so uh, the, the fact that, that it wasn't uh, some sort of sexual assault doesn't take away from the depth of the sin of what did occur. 
that David and Bathsheba doesn't give her, us insight into her, her motivations, um, but the, the rest of the evidence from Scripture, I think, would point us to see that both of them were consensual in this. And if they are having a sexual relationship outside of the context of marriage, then what happens? Bathsheba becomes pregnant. So now David has committed adultery, lust, He's valuing others, uh, uh, valuing himself as more important than others, but the sin continues to increase. Look in verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent, to, sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were going uh, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house. But there follow, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept on the floor of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Now David's sin continues to increase because now he's trying to cover it up. He's trying to trick Uriah into going back and, and sleeping with his own wife so that it would be uh, hopefully uh, apparent to Uriah and everybody else that this baby was Uriah's and not David's. But notice the righteousness of Uriah shows forth. And unlike David, the passive one who is content to send others out while he sits in, in luxury himself, Uriah says, I'm not going to do it. And even though you've called me back, the rest of Israel is battling and fighting. They're sleeping in tents. They are suffering and struggling. Who am I to do that? And so Uriah shows righteousness and faithfulness where David doesn't. And over and over, repeated in this, it tells us, but he didn't go to his house. He didn't go to his house. He didn't go to his house. The scheme, the cover-up, the lies, the deceit of David fails. So what does he do? He sins the more. And sin increases. Look in verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there was valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David. Uh, among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Here, David has schemed, he's plotted, he has uh, planned the murder of Uriah. In fact, he sends the orders by the hand of Uriah, and he murders and he slaughters this guy through this conspiracy because he can't cover up his own sin. 
here, we're adding murder now and further lies to the sin of David. But yet it continues on. Look down in verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. And Yahweh sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There are two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he grew with him and, his, and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Notice what is going on. David brings Bathsheba into his house after her period of mourning. He marries her. Uh, Whether his full desire to bring her into his his home is uh, one of of generosity or if he's just trying to display kindness so that it looks good to everybody else, we're not told. But what we do see is that uh, from that time that she comes in and the birth of their child is several months. But what do you notice not happening in David's heart? He doesn't repent. His sin continues. He hides this. He wrestles with it. He struggles with it. But he puts it aside and he doesn't bring it to the Lord. Not only that, when Nathan finally does come and he begins to expose David's sin, what do we see in the heart of David? David is very eager to point out and to condemn and look down on the sin of others, but not on his own. The sin of David increases. told you about this conversation uh, before uh, when I was doing some premarital counseling with some uh, kids from that uh, I knew growing up. And I asked this question. If you were to stand before God tonight and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you answer? And my friend's answer was, why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he let me into his kingdom? I mean, I've been a pretty good person. I've not really, I've not killed anybody. I've not lied or cheated. Uh, I mean, I'm not like Hitler. Why shouldn't he let me into his kingdom? Some of us, that's our default perception and evaluation of ourselves. That we start off thinking that we're pretty good people. And the way that we determine and evaluate that is as we compare ourselves to others. And there are people out there, we would say, are definitely displeasing to God, whose sin increases and abounds. The Hitlers, the Stalins, the Pol Pots, these kind of folks. Or David in our story. But I'm not like David. I haven't done the things David has done. My sin hasn't increased that much. 
really? Because the scriptures would tell us that there is no righteous person in the world. None, there is no one who doesn't sin except for Jesus. No one does good. Have you ever valued your own comfort at the expense of other people? Content to let them suffer or struggle or to, to, to refuse to help because it would be an inconvenience to you and you prefer to let somebody else do it? Now we're in the context of the sin of David. Have you ever uh, looked upon someone who is not your spouse with a lustful eye? According to Jesus, you have committed adultery. We have sinned just like David. Uh, have, have you ever tried to cover up your own sin, lied, not wanting it to be exposed to other people, no matter how great or how small it is? We are sinning just like David. Have you, have you ever killed anyone? Plotted to? Maybe you would say, not really. You know what Jesus says? If you harbor anger and bitterness in your heart towards someone else, you have committed murder. How long does it take you or me to bring our sin and to repent and confess before our God? How quick are we to look down on others who do lesser sins than us, condemn them, all the while looking at ourselves, elevating ourselves, looking at others' sins so that we can feel better about ourselves? Guess what the scriptures say to you and to me? You are the man. You are the woman. Your life, your heart, your sin has displeased God. And your sin increases and increases and increases. And you and me and everyone else stand worthy of the just condemnation of our God. All of us are those whose sin has increased. That leaves us with a question then. Is there grace? Is there grace for someone like David? Is there grace? Really, the question gets to this. Is there grace for someone like me? Is there grace for someone like you? Let's look and see. Does grace abound? Notice back in verses 26 and 27, what doesn't happen during this time where David sits in his sin and doesn't bring it to the Lord? God doesn't wipe him out. God doesn't come in these months where David is hiding and committing all these things and wipe David out. God is patient with David. God's grace is extended to David as David is hiding this sin and keeping it in his heart. It's interesting. David also is one who has written a lot of the Psalms in, uh, in uh, a later book in the, in the Bible. And David, on more than one occasion, writes about his own sin. And in one psalm in particular, David writes about his experience of harboring and holding sin in his heart and refusing to bring it before his God. And guess what David describes as 
his, his life and his experience like with being miserable? Is God's hand being heavy upon him? Now that psalm, Psalm 32, wasn't directly written in this extent, but we understand and see the experience that David has and the people of God have. When we keep our repentance and our confession from our God in his grace, he doesn't allow us to be comfortable there. His hand is heavy upon his people. His grace comes to us as our sin abounds. But also notice, as our sin increases, God's grace abounds all the more. Notice how verse 12 starts. And Yahweh sent Nathan to David. I love you, David. I'm not going to let you stay in your sin. My hand heavy upon you, your feeling of of great shame and guilt isn't enough. I'm going to send someone to you to reveal to you your sin to expose to you what you have done and to highlight your sin before you. God and his grace, his grace abounds and he comes and he speaks to David, exposing him and calling him out for his sin. But as it goes on, we also notice God's grace still extending and abounding to David. Look down in verse 10. We'll pick up in in verse 7 and go down. And David says, You are the man. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you much more. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife. And you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah to be your wife. Thus says Yahweh, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And then down in verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned Yahweh, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. At first, we hear about these great consequences that David experiences from his sin, for his scorning the word of God, for him scorning and bringing shame to God. But this, too, is the grace of God. Later in David's life, what we're going to see is David's failure to give his children consequences for their sin. And their sin runs amok and it destroys and wrecks their lives and the lives of others around them. But here, God, as a good, gracious, compassionate, loving father, gives his son discipline and consequences for his sin. The grace of God abounds. But also, notice, it continues to abound. Notice what David says in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. Now, David repents. And what we've seen through our other studies in Scripture is that repentance is not something that we work up out of our own hearts, out of our own strength. 
But the scriptures describe repentance as being a gift of God. That God extends to us the grace of repentance. It's through his kindness that he leads us to repentance. Here, God extends grace and abounds in this grace to David by granting him repentance. But notice how he continues to go on. And Nathan says to David, Yahweh also has put away your sin. You shall not die. What? The penalty for murder in Israel was death. The penalty for adultery in Israel was death. How? How can God extend this kind of grace to David and say, I've put your sin away. You will not die. Who, who is this God? Is, is he being foolish? Is he being reckless? Is, is he being unjust? Just this past year in New York, uh, a man in his 20s was convicted for four uh, sexual assaults that he committed when he was 16 and 17 on younger teenage girls. He was given probation at first, uh, and he broke that probation. Came back into uh, the courtroom, and uh, the judge again gave him probation. And when one of the victims heard about it, she had to get up and run out of the courtroom, and she was physically sick in the bathroom because this abuse of justice rocked her to her inner being. A good and just judge does not just let someone off. How can a good and righteous and holy God just put away sin like this? And not just put it away, he doesn't stop here. Notice what happens. Uh, the, the son that died as a consequence of David's sin. David prays and pleads before the Lord. The Lord still gives this consequence of that child dying. But look in verse 23. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Here, David is confident that even though this child died, he doesn't respond in saying that God was unfair or unjust for the, the consequence of his sin extending to this child. But what he is confident of is the fact that when he dies, he will go to be with his child. God has extended his grace and his love to this child that came from this adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. God has saved and redeemed this little one, and David will see him again. But not only that, look as it continues to go on. In verse 24, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And Yahweh loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet so that he called his name Jedidiah. Because of Yahweh, God gives them another son. And God specifically communicates and says over this son, I love him. 
He is my beloved. In fact, although they called him Solomon at first, in light of what the Lord communicates and, and, and says about him, they also refer to him as Jedidiah. This is the child, Solomon, who we read about in that genealogy, that through the, the child that comes from the wife of Uriah, it's Solomon. This is David and Bathsheba's son, who God extends and puts his great love on, who through him fulfills his promise that he's given to David, that he will always have an heir on the throne. And who is that heir? It's Christ, the promised one. Not only has God put away David's sin, not only does David not die, but God bestows upon David and Bathsheba this great honor that the promised one would descend and come from them. Who is this God? How, how can he do this? How can he extend such grace and mercy to sinners? It's because this promised one who was born, who descended from Tamar, who descended from Rahab, who descended from Ruth, who descended from Bathsheba, is Jesus of Nazareth, God who took on flesh. And you want to hear the culmination of the grace that abounds? That God would be the one who suffered and died. God would be the one who took on our punishment that we deserved so that we would be made right with him. How can God put away sin? The only way he can do it is if he is both the just one and the justifier of the one who has faith and hope and trust in Jesus. And that's what we see here. The sin of David abounds. It increases and grows more and more. Your sin and mine increases, increases more and more and more. But the grace of God abounds all the more. You cannot out sin the grace of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Have you valued your life over others? God has grace to forgive that. Have you lusted after another, committing adultery in your heart, or committed adultery physically once, multiple times? The grace of God is there and can forgive that. Have you killed and murdered, not just in your mind, but physically, taking the life of an unborn baby? Help to do that? Maybe you've killed another and you've kept it secret all these years. God has grace to abound and forgive and cover that. Have you assaulted another? Child, woman, man? God's grace extends there. Do you even believe that someone like Hitler or Stalin if they turned and looked and called out to the God of grace and mercy that he would put their sin away, the scriptures say yes. The reason we have to believe that is because you would have to say, that is what would be necessary for me to be made right with God. If it was only you that needed to be redeemed, you know what the price would be? the perfect, sinless death 
of Jesus on the cross to redeem and save you, one sinner. The grace of God abounds. And notice, how does David lay claim to that? Not by doing great and good works. When does this grace come to him? Smack dab in the middle of his sin. You can do nothing, nothing to merit the grace and mercy of God except call out to him. Look to him. Come to him in repentance and faith. And God's grace abounds and extends and will forgive you. But if you don't look to Jesus who suffered and died on your behalf, then that punishment falls on you. The full brunt of the consequence falls on you. And God will not put your sin away. If you're here this morning and you're hearing this sermon, guess what it means? God's grace is being extended to you. God in his mercy is exposing and pointing out your sin. He is saying, you are the man. You are the woman. Your life and your heart has displeased God. But hear the grace still. Forgiveness is offered to you in Jesus. The inclusion of Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and the genealogy of Jesus screams the grace of God to you and to me this morning. May we hope and cling and rest in Jesus, her descendant. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the grace of the gospel. We thank you for the grace of Jesus. We thank you that you have done what we couldn't. We pray that you would show us our total inability. May the one and only one that we cling and hope to be Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer, the one who has put our sin away. And in him you say, you are my beloved. I love you. I delight in you. That all of us could be called Jedediahs. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.